Hi, and welcome back to To Think Minimum. Today is Friday, June 16th, 2023. I'm Scott Walston, president of the Technology Policy Institute, and I'm here with my co-host, TPI Senior Fellow, Sarah O. Lamb. Today, we're happy to be speaking with the head of economic policy research at Google, Dr. Guy Benishai. Prior to working at Google, he was a principal at the Brattle Group, where he focused on antitrust and other matters, and the, ch- the chief economist for the New York State Attorney General's office. Now, because the only topic anyone cares about these days is artificial intelligence, that's what we're going to talk about. And of course, Guy is spending a lot of time on that being at Google. We're going to explore several topics, kind of the, the economics of, of AI, what its impacts are likely to be, its economic impacts, and how policymakers are approaching it. Uh, and what they might, what they're doing right, and, and what they're what they're doing wrong. Um, Guy, thanks for joining us. Hey, uh, Sarah Scott, terrific to be here. You know, as the podcast's biggest fan, I'm trying to keep it together. Um, <laughs> but again, thank you for the opportunity. We 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 appreciate that, um, and we're thrilled to have you. Um, so let's let's just start with uh, you know, tell us a little bit about um, about the economics of AI. This sort of burst onto the scene, at least as far as people who weren't watching too closely are concerned. Um, and it's beginning to pervade the, the economy. What's the, how do we think about this? Um, you know, what's the right framework for thinking about AI? Okay, uh, that's, that's a useful uh, question. Let me, Scott, maybe just start first by a general definition in what are features or elements of AI that we think are really important. So, you know, it's a digital technology at that, that the bottom line, right? That the most basic form that can observe data, recognize patterns, and make predictions. Now, that in and of itself probably doesn't sound too interesting, uh, but I think that there's three things to keep in mind. Uh, First, in terms of the nature of the data, it's not just what used to be structured and single-sourced data, but it's also also multi-sourced and unstructured data that AI is able to interpret. Uh, The ability to observe instantaneously in real time uh, kind of like multiple data sources is really important. Think about humans kind of like flipping through a textbook. That takes a very long time. Uh, and then the third one is kind of like the type of observations that AI can make. And that's really important. It's not just observations or, or tasks that are prompted or coded, but it has an, it, it, it has also kind of like the ability to somewhat autonomously make observations on these unstructured data sets in in real time. And I think that that's really important because it implies that it exceeds the speed at which humans conduct uh, activities. And for that reason, it really expands our ability to do things in a way that we've never never been able to do before. Um, And this is important. It's, It's really a dramatic shift in our capabilities to collect and analyze information. And I think that for this reason, for these reasons, the economic potential of AI is quite significant. So right now, um, people are, everyone's kind of obsessed um, with large language models. And when I say people, I don't mean that to be sort of in a derogatory way because I am too. Um, but that's not all that AI is. I mean, we've been working with AI well, long before that, I mean, some of it is, has been large language models. I know Google used, used AI to help interpret uh, search queries, um, but AI is used in other contexts. Is there something different about the um, type of AI that, um, you know, that ChatGPT uses or that Google's Bard uses um, or that any of the other big um, AIs use that's, that's kind of fundamentally different in an economic sense 
than um, other kinds of AIs like that drive uh, driverless cars, or we hope will yeah. drive driverless cars, for example. Yeah. So, Scott, I want to respond in two ways. So, first, I want to respond, you know, uh, to uh, right. Meet my Judy is an economist here. You know, provide <laughs> you what are the economic features of AI that are really different, and I think that there's three elements uh, that really enable AI to deliver economic benefits in ways that we have never seen with predecessor digital technologies. Uh, the first one is self-improvement. If you think about digital technologies, the it, it was a like a really important feature that we had remarkable economies of scale. That once you develop uh, a digital solution, replication tends to be costless or inexpensive. With AI, we actually take that a step further. And if you know, we train AI, uh, generative uh, AI and LLMs uh, in a way that actually doesn't only create economies of scale, it actually enables diminishing costs over time. And I think that's really important. Uh, another element or feature that I think is categorically different from what we've seen before is the expanded capacity to automate. So with predecessor digital technologies, we tended to automate tasks that are more manual uh, and routine, whereas with AI, we're increasingly finding that we can actually automate tasks that are non-routine and cognitive. And that, I think, is also important. Uh, and the third uh, feature, which we kind of covered already, is like pattern recognition. The ability to autonomously recognize and observe patterns and make predictions using multi-sourced, unstructured data is really important. Um, oh, so, and then, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go, go, go ahead, finish up, and then I want to follow up yeah. with something. You features. know, Scott, I was going to say, like, from a personal perspective, so look, I've been at Google for three years, as, and you can imagine, we've been an AI-first company for quite some time now. Mm -hmm. uh, for, the most, uh, for the most part, I think, uh, those efforts, the tremendous R&D and, uh, and scientific advancements that we made are not really visible to the public. Uh, and to be honest, it, it's hard to visualize them until they become kind of like a user-facing platform. My tipping point, my uh, pivotal moment was when I first used BARD to ask, how do I know if I'm not a fish? <laughs> and that was remarkable. So first, I didn't think that I have these ex ex existential questions in me. Uh, and also, the responses were so thoughtful and detailed in a matter of seconds. Um, so I think it was like kind of like the first time that I really realized that AI has this ability uh, to kind of like generate information and provide content, uh, access information ultimately, in ways that are really thought-provoking and creative, uh, a technology that we didn't really have before. So are you a fish? It, it turns out that I'm not. I oh, okay. know. <laughs> you, <gotta laughs> <go to> <laughs> uh, you know, it was really interesting. I, I can follow all the details, but I remember uh, some information about check if we have gills, if you have fins, if you live <laughs> in water. And then consult a marine biologist or a fish expert, which I thought was really rich. <laughs> well, that, that's nice that it wanted confirmation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Independent confirmation. Yeah. Um, but so going back I'm to sorry, the, you were going to ask a more serious yeah, question. Um, the, the, first, the first thing you said, that it, um, the, the point about self-improvement, and, and it's not just that replication mm -hmm. is costless, but that it can reduce costs over time. Um, the implications of that sound... Um, enormous. So, yeah. I mean, does that imply that, like, if in pharmaceuticals, for example, that um, the cost to develop the next new drug could be decreasing over time, 
I mean, pharmaceutical companies spend enormous amounts of money on R&D. Is it, are you saying that maybe it will take less and less? Or even to use you know, your own example, people, you said people don't understand the enormous resources that Google has put into AI. And I'm sure that's also true for um, open AI and, and everyone else who's using it. But would that also apply to incremental developments in AI? Yes, and then some. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. So first, I do think that as a general purpose technology, we're looking at a technology that triggers other technologies, which is remarkable. With respect to the diminishing costs, these models are trained. And as, the, and, and as computing costs are declining over time, we're going to see improved efficacy and efficiency and accuracy of these models. Now, if you can like pause for a minute and think about general purpose technologies in a historical sense, uh, we, you know, we like to point out to the compounding effects of general purpose technologies. Think of the printing press that led to a scientific revolution. Think to a transistor that led to a digital revolution. I think where the rubber hits the road and what you just alluded to, Scott, is exactly the point. We don't know what those compound, compounding effects of AI will be in the future. You're absolutely right that we, in healthcare, we recognize that drug discovery costs are diminishing as a result of AI applications. But what Avi Goldfarb, who actually was on, on your podcast, points out, and I think correctly so, is that these are just one aspect, kind of like a single element of, of, of applying or deploying the technology and once we get to a system-wide application, once we have enterprise-wide applications for pharmaceutical companies, for example, uh, those economic features will uh, generate far greater benefits. So in a sense, I think we're really just scratching the surface. You know, one feature of general purpose technologies is often that you don't know it's general purpose technology until much later, you know, until it's been around for a while. But in the case of AI, there seems to be almost unanimous agreement that it's a general purpose technology. Um, is is there you know is there a chance that that we're wrong that it's that it's hype? I mean, it sure doesn't seem like it, but it also seems really fast to conclude that it's a GPT. Yeah, no, I, we're economists. There always is a chance that we're wrong. Um, <laughs> Usually, more than a chance. <laughs> I know. I, I don't know. So let me kind of like think about this constructively. So what we have learned so far from the empirical literature and the very recent one, right, is that every time we enable humans to be assisted by AI, we see remarkable productivity gains, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and productivity can lead to a lot of many different things. Uh, I think in the context of AI, because we tend to automate tasks that are more mundane and routine, it really enables to kind of like release those human traits that we really enjoy and that we really benefit from, uh, you know, uh, judgment, empathy, intuition. Uh, and I think that for that reason, we're not just looking at increase in productivity in the narrow sense, but there's kind of like a good reason to suspect that this indeed will turn into a general purpose technology and that we will have these compounded effects. A question going back to you saying Google's been working on this for a long time, and a lot of companies are at the same point, you know, releasing their um, GPT-4 or 5 or BARD. Um, what brought it to the tipping point? You know, were all these groups working on these models, you know, for 10 years, and then suddenly now um, it, it got to a point of advancement that it's useful to the world? Um, what, what happened in the last 
year that didn't happen five years ago or. Yeah. No, Sarah, it's a great question. So we have been, we Google, sorry, let me be clear. We've been an AI first company since 2017. Uh, so it's been quite a, a long time for us. We've invested billions of dollars in the technology. Uh, if you look, and it's not just us, it's the entire industry. Um, you know, if you look at it, it, data on investments, uh, on startup investments and venture funding, you're looking at it annual increases of 75% on average in the last five years. Uh, but a lot of it wasn't really visible or maybe a lot of it wasn't really comprehended by the public. Uh, and maybe it's not until people get to experiment with those existential questions that we talked about before that it gains such visibility. Uh, it's kind of like interesting. A lot of times, you know, we kind of like dismiss the importance of entertainment, I would say, in driving technology forward. And I think that to some extent is what we're seeing here. So another, I mean, related to um, the question about what, you know, what caused this to happen now, um, do you think that it's sort of bursting out um, into view has been a, how has that influenced policy, let's say? Do you think um, it's it's caused um, policymakers to kind of jump on a bandwagon, um, think that AI just means chatbots and um, chatbots and Terminator, uh, and that in some sense, let, let's set aside what is best for society and productivity in the world. We can come back to that. But would it might it have been better for poli in a policy sense if it had been slower and policymakers had a chance to kind of learn about it as it developed rather than suddenly being confronted with it? Um, I mean, it's a counterfactual, we'll never know, but. Yeah, no, that's right. It is counterfactual and we'll never know. Policy needs to offer solutions to real problems and real mm -hmm. tensions. And I think you're right, Scott, as we are at the very early stages of implementation of this technology, I don't know that we have a full comprehension of what those tensions are. I actually, I just to interrupt. I really like that you said policy has to answer real, real, real problems, but not politicians. They they try to they can try to answer problems that don't even exist um, or may never exist. So that's uh, <laughs> so. Um, yes, I think that AI needs to be regulated in some way. Is an important and powerful technology. It certainly creates tensions and can lead to misuse. So I think when we're talking more broadly about policy, I think we're really trying to find a balance between the duty to protect and the need to advance the technology forward. Um, I think it's really important in, in kind of like a more narrow US-focused sense is the recognition that the fact that we've advanced this, the science does not necessarily imply that we will be the market that actually gets to capitalize and leverage on the economic potential. And I think that it's so important to reach that balance between a duty to protect to protect, and making sure that we actually capitalize on the economic potential. So um, just, to, just to play extreme libertarian here, um, why is some regulation required? I mean, any new tool has, uh, you know, can be used for, it can be used in bad ways. Um, do we, I mean, what, what what makes you say that we need regulation, even though you're not saying what kind? So, kind of like three aspects that 
So I, I think that's right, Scott. I, regulation kind of like triggers a lot of hyperpartisan issues and concerns, yeah. but I think that three kind of like common themes that we can find, not just cross-partisan, but also more collectively as a country, as a nation, um, are really important. And I think, you know, just to clarify what they are, the first one is, as I mentioned, beyond the scientific discovery, we have to make sure that we develop scale and commercialize AI, AI applications. Make sure that the scientific breakthrough actually translates to economic success. Mm-hmm. We have to expand AI's footprint beyond the tech sector. It cannot be understated how important it is that small businesses and traditional industries, such as manufacturing, agriculture, transportations, are uh, employing employing and adapting AI technologies. Uh, And then I think we need a policy agenda that promotes uh, and supports a workforce transition it's not just to ensure that AI is perhaps distributed more equitably, but it's more importantly so that we will be able, we will be the nation that is actually able to promote, advance, and deploy the technology. So I think that we can really debate as to the delineation and the nature and what would be optimal in these directions. But I do think that beyond any partisan um, uh, perspectives, those three elements are critical. Do you think policymakers are are generally focused in that way? Because it seems to me, right now, the the focus is more on how to how to restrain AI um, rather than how to use it productively. And again, I mean, it's just my impression. What do I know? Um, but I I worry that you know people say we need we need some regulations on it. And all of these examples are, of course, good ones. We don't. We don't want it to be evil in some sense, right? Um, we don't want it to be, um, you know, biased in in, in bad ways. Uh, but, you know, do you think that the policies, policy proposals that we see address those issues without um, either address those issues at all or address them with a low enough cost? So it's really, it's, you know, as an economist, it's really hard for me to kind of reach a conclusion on, on whether those policies are working or not. We're very early stage of, yes. the, of setting those policies, and there's many different voices in the conversation. Um, I do think that, you know, if we pause for a second, if we think again about the benefits, you know, the fact that we have an opportunity to reverse decades of a productivity decline through this type of technology. We have an opportunity to reverse a diminishing share of labor in our economy. And we're also at a risk of falling behind. You know, there's no guarantee that in just a few years around the corner, globally, we're going to retain our global leadership in emerging technologies, or that we will be within the top three or four leading economic powers. The The risks are just too too great, too large to kind of like propose and advance policies that would undermine those needs. At the same time, there is a clear duty to protect. And as in any other technology, AI is a powerful technology. It can lead to misuse, and mm-hmm. we want to make sure that it's being implemented responsibly. So I, I kind of like, it's hard for me to kind of like opine on whether we're moving in the right direction or not. 
But I hope and I think that our policymakers recognize how important this balance is. So, I mean, when you talk about when you talk about how this might be an answer to the productivity puzzle, the problem that uh, you know we've we've seen such declines in productivity growth. Um, so, you know, let's suppose that AI does have can radically improve our productivity. Um, you know, that could bring with it uh, short-term problems, which I know you've thought about problems might be the wrong word, but there might be labor force adjustments. Um, and that even if it generates net um, new, uh, net positive jobs in the in the future and better jobs, um, like we've seen with technology in the past, it's conceivable that there is, would be a transition period um, where people have to, you know, have to deal with AIs being able to do some jobs that people did. Um, how should we, how, I mean, first of all, how should we think about that? Because we certainly don't see it yet. Um, I mean, like I said, it's very early days, but, um, you know, we, we certainly don't see anything like it in the unemployment numbers. Um, but how should we think about it? Is it realistic? How do we prepare? Um, and in a way that allows, um, still allows for technological improvement without, you know, too much of a backlash. Okay. So Scott, let me kind of like break down to a few, uh, um, components. So first, you know, when we talk about productivity, just to be clear, um, you know, this is one of the most important determinants of a country's wages and standard of living. We, as economists, we cannot understate how, you know, greater productivity leads to greater job outcomes in numerous dimensions. So we're not just talking about wages, but we're also talking about career path, um, stability, and so forth. And beyond that, when we're thinking specifically about a technology that augments and improves jobs in a way that automates the more mundane and enable us to be far more creative, thoughtful, innovative in our jobs, there's tremendous non-pecuniary benefits that come with this increased productivity. I think that's really important to keep in mind. Um, in terms of whether it will ultimately be distributed equally, I think it's a really challenging question. Uh, if I want to think about optimistically about the potential, the technology itself has a tremendous democratizing power to enable people to access uh, access occupations and skills. And that's really important. We've seen that with prior digital technologies. In that respect, I think it's really critical that we really make an effort. And, you know, Scott, whether it's policy or whether it's programs or whether it's collaboration between industry, policy and academics and labor unions and creatives, right? That's a different question. Uh, but it's critically important that we include in the circles of entities that benefit from this technology, small businesses and traditional industries. That has a tremendous um, potential to lift all boats, if you will. Mm -hmm. Now, when we talk specifically, and I think that was kind of like the third element of your question about, is this going to ultimately introduce greater equality in our market or whether this is going to be shared equally? You know, I think that first and foremost, we got to be mindful about the fact that we cannot answer this question in abstract. Uh, you know, given what we know today about um, economic barriers to mobility in, in our economy, right? I think that any wealth creation would run into tensions in that respect, mm -hmm. right? And we're learning more about such barriers in a way that we haven't thought about them in the past. And that really pertains to policies that are far broader than the technology sector, right? We're going to talk about taxation, about healthcare, about education in a way that it, that really expands the conversation. 
Um, but having said that, I, I do think that if we have a once in a generation opportunity to meaningfully create better jobs in what we can do in a more micro level sense is making sure that those opportuni opportunities are expanded to traditional industries and small businesses, we should absolutely make the most to make sure that that actually takes place. Um, when we, we had uh, a while ago, um, Professor Christina McElhern um, from the University of Toronto on, yeah. and she was talking about a paper that she had done on automation by, on uh, workers by um, age age group. And, you know, she was speculating that, you know, one advantage of AI is that it could help, it could help older workers deal with automation because, you know, if you don't need to necessarily learn a new computing language, you can ask it to write, you know, the Python code for you. Right. So you can retain the, that, you know, that institutional knowledge yeah. um, that older workers have uh, without having to learn whatever new thing is. I already feel that way because now I can write code in Python and I don't know Python. Um, so, you know, just, I don't know, pseudo coding. Um, but, but then, you know, as economists, we, we, we always say, and this, I mean, this is, I'm just sort of, I guess, emphasizing what you, what you said, that um, when something is a net benefit to society, we should be able to compensate the losers. Um, and we generally do not a very good job of that. Um, I mean, if there's one thing economists have shown is that free trade is good, um, and yet our trade adjustment assistance program is less than a billion dollars. Um, not that we necessarily would know what to do with it if it were bigger, uh, but we, you know, these, these, these issues somehow often tend to fall to the side. Um, Scott, thank you. I'm so glad you're asking this question. And, you know, I think that as economists, and I, maybe I should be less critical of my tribe, um, <laughs> we, we tend to overlook these, these issues and these challenges. And there is even somewhere a fundamental presumption that maybe it's a question of redistribution and payment. Nobody wants to be paid to let go of a job that they enjoy. I think mm -hmm. people are looking for better, more meaningful jobs. And I think that's what's remarkable about this technology. I think it does provide the opportunity for better, meaningful, and yes, better paid jobs uh, in the future. And if we're looking at the literature, it seems like in every occupation, every skill, every function that has been studied in the last year, we find significant potential for doing so on a wide basis. Um, and I think that's what we should really focus on. I think that is an opportunity that, you know, on a bipartisan level, to be honest, we can all align with and promote. I think it's really important. Um, Sarah, did you want to follow up? Like you were going to ask something. Um, I, well, I was thinking, you know, that the trade-offs between all the pros and the cons. So, you're, you know, there are so many productivity gains for people to not have to do mundane tasks anymore. Um, it's like the spreadsheet. You know, once there's a spreadsheet, you don't need like someone writing down the numbers in a chart. Um, and then there are a lot, you know, I, I forget if there's a study or an observation, but there are so many more finance jobs from the spreadsheet. Um, it wasn't a lot, you know, it didn't cut out jobs in accounting. It actually created so many more jobs. Um, same thing with like accounting software and, you know, all, all sorts of, so that story, you know, if you apply it to AI, the fear of um, losing jobs to automation is not really valid. Um, but yeah, I guess, uh, you know, how does AI differ from the narrative, you know, from automation, from technology? It, 
is it is it transformative or not i guess that's the continual question like is it really that different or is it just a lot more of what we've experienced before so sarah it is a great question i i just want to clarify a couple of things i think it's also a valid concern i think it would be unreasonable for us as scott alluded to before to kind of go into this conversation not realizing that there is a risk of job displacement at the very minimum in the short term, in the transitionary period. So I think that is a valid concern. That's one that we absolutely need to take seriously through, again, uh, workforce transition agenda. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned banking. I want to kind of, to some extent, we've been to this movie before. If you think about it, in the 1980s, when we rolled out ATM machines, there were tremendous concerns that human tellers would lose their jobs. As a result, branches, the number of branches only increased, not declined. And the number of tellers that were employed at those banks and those branches increased and they became more financial advisors than just individuals that are counting cash. I think it's a perfect precedent to what may take place in the future with further technology. Is to the other question about, you know, are we it really at a tipping point? Are we at a point where we're uh, what we're doing in terms of automation is dramatically different from what we've done in the past. I think it's really hard to tell. Um, I don't know if this is binary or if this is a continuum. I think there's no doubt that we are moving towards more, uh, less, sorry, we are automating more non-routine and knowledge tasks than we did before. Uh, and with that, you know, you have, of course, more concerns uh, about displacement, but also greater benefits. Uh, and again, this is why this is so challenging. So, you know, one concern that I have, and maybe this is just really, really minor and because I'm very petty, um, mm-hmm. is that uh, in, in some of these uh, non-formulaic tasks, it will actually in some ways make us less creative. And the reason I say that is because um, I, you know, everybody's played around with ChatGPT and Bard. And, you know, I've asked it to like write an op-ed based on one of my papers. Um, and it know it knows the paper, and it'll do a pretty good job of knowing the conclusions. But then the op-ed that it writes is basically just whatever conventional wisdom is. When my whole paper was about you know conventional wisdom being wrong, so when people use this and it's based on a on a on a collection of existing literature, existing work, is it just going to be people writing? the same thing again and again in just different ways because they're having an AI do it for them. I mean, we're I think we're about to see a whole lot of junk um, because people are using these AIs to write for them. Now, obviously, I don't think this is going to permeate through the economy, but it annoys yeah. me. So look, Scott, technology is a re- reflection of humanity for its right. best and worst. And we're inherently right? boring, so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it's really interesting, and I think this is a question that we'll, <laughs> we'll see evolve. And it's really fascinating to see what the next steps and applications and use cases will be. Um, you are right that there is some gravitation towards the middle, if you will, mm-hmm. or towards consensus. When you are training models on data and content that is kind of like widely shared and widely available, you are going to, you, you tend to get the consensus. question is, you know, Scott, next time that you are going to write an essay, if we have a chatbot that is trained on your data individually, how's that going to change the result? Is that really going to uh, reflect Scott's view 
more accurately? Is that going to be more creative? Is that going to be more innovative? Is that going to be more different from the consensus? Right, so it might be more Scott know. than Scott. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm horribly inconsistent. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but there's also kind of like going back to the distributional question that we like talked about before. It's really interesting because in some dimension, if we are leveling the skills, right, if we are getting what you call the consensus, I'm, uh, let me suggest that this is not just a consensus, but this is a common skill level. And if we're leveling the skill across different um, jobs and different occupations, are we actually providing more opportunities for individuals that didn't have access to higher paying jobs to actually really benefit, to really thrive? with their peculiar human skills, such as judgment, intuition, creativity, and so forth. I think that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I think to a lot, uh, I think, I hope to to a great degree in the future years, we will see that taking place. So for the human aspects, um, you know, will it, will all this new AI technology really heighten what we know as human? So you've mentioned judgment, creativity, um, and, and those are the wisdom, the human qualities that maybe get washed you know, together with um, technology um, benefits. But yeah, do you think in the future, like the, the human versus machine will be more separated or or is it are these tools helping us to amplify our humanity? Um, have you thought about that? No, of course, Sarah. I, I do think that the, you know, I kind of like struggle a little bit with the framing of human versus machine, because I think that what the economic literature is consistently teaching us is that it's actually the tremendous uh, comparative advantage of humans with machines. It's, and you know, go back to Gary Kasparov and DeepMind in 97, when IBM beat our best human chess player. Yeah. I think that caused a lot of concern. But here we are 25 years later, and what we find is that human grandmasters that are assisted by AI is a winning combination. So that framing, I think, is probably what is the future of human plus machines? Uh, and would we be able to do different things? You know, on like a personal note, I, I kind of remember, and you guys can probably relate to this. When you're like a you just came out of grad school or you just finished your bachelor's in economics, you do a lot of what's called data cleaning. Those are horrible mundane tasks that take weeks. We still right? do I, that. I think, yep. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think of the time that we spent as a profession on this term cleaning data, it's inhumane. It's no, it, it doesn't surprise me that economists are unhappy. But with AI, <laughs> I don't want to say that we're going to completely eliminate this unhappiness but we can tremendously diminish it. So we as economists can be more thoughtful and constructive about the real challenges that we face as a nation. Yeah, that's true. I saw I, that, that example just rings true because we spent so much time cleaning data and already do use AI for, for some of it. Yeah, I saw a photo, yeah. uh, Adobe Photoshop um, advertisement where they could fix problems in the image. They can make things like symmetrical or... That's amazing. Yeah. So if they can, you know, sy yeah. synthetic data sets, you wouldn't have to yeah. spend time making them. Look, look, I do hope that we'll never like, I, I don't think that we'll ever, and I may be wrong about this, uh, that we'll ever, that we will become obsolete. 
that you will never need some type of human interaction and intuition to determine, are these images reasonable? Do they reflect something that's more human? Do they reflect kind of like common experiences? Uh, but the fact that we can automate those, I'm going to call them entry-level tasks and activities. If you think about the hierarchy of the activities and the tasks that go into our occupations, I think that that's really important. Yeah, I, I, I feel like we find new things to do with it every day. Um, and uh, it's just it's just so much fun to play with. Um, I mean, you know, on the data task, the, the data cleaning that you're talking about, you know, even little things like um, I'll download a spreadsheet from BLS and it's got the data formatted one way and I want to format it another way. Exactly. Yeah, I know how to do that. But instead of like writing a little code in Stata or whatever, I just dump the table into ChatGPT and ask it to reformat it the way I want it. It does it. Um, and I, I feel like I do countless little things like that during the day that adds, it adds up. Yeah. You know, one thing that I would mention about these applications and use cases, they're so interesting. So we talked about the different ways that economists are using um, uh, generative AI applications. I think that coding is actually really important and it can make, I want to circle back to that question of the footprint. How can we make sure that this technology gets widely deployed by small businesses? Um, we know that the benefits, the incremental, incremental benefits of generative AI are far greater than what we've seen with digital technologies. So it leads us to believe that that in itself would be enough to make sure that small businesses are really adopting these technologies. There's other barriers. There's significant barriers to technology adoption for small businesses. And one of them is, you know, integrating software. It tends to be really expensive because right. small businesses don't have those necessarily those skills, right? They don't have a software engineer on board. And a lot of times no need to retain a third party to do software and data integration. That is really expensive. Uh, if the use cases will be at the level that coding will be more intuitive. We're looking at kind of like a ability to diffuse technology to smaller players at a small scale in a way that we haven't seen before. The so let me ask actually a follow-up question to that, yeah. um, which is, I mean, for, for so long, there's been this push to teach every kid coding in school, right. which I think is ridiculous because, I mean, what is it that they want us to not teach them? art, music. I mean, how many things can we take out of schools before we're not? Anyway, different rant. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but maybe now should, we shouldn't be teaching them coding per se. I mean, some people need to be computer scientists. We'll, we'll need those. But maybe we want, want them to learn something, some kind of pseudo coding, right? You want them to understand logic um, and the way code, you know, the way, way a, a code would, 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 you would lay it out the way it thinks um, instead of teaching them um, Java or C++ or anything like that. I don't know. What, what do you think? Scott, I'm so glad you asked this question. And let me just say, so, uh, let me kind of like preface it. And I think this is ultimately really, you hit the core of why policy in this area, in this space is going to be so challenging and so difficult. Um, pause for a minute. Think about David Otter's contribution from MIT about today. If you think about it, 60% of our of our occupations or 60% of our workforce was in occupations that have never existed mm -hmm. yeah. before the war, before World War II. And that is primarily because of technology. That is just going to increase. That means that we're looking at tremendous occupational changes over the next couple of decades, right? 
a change to more meaningful and better jobs, yet an important transition that we need to account for. Um, now, how do we skill for those jobs if we don't even know what they are? If we recognize that, you know, skilling is no longer a barrier for individuals who didn't have access to education, what does, and we know that we're now going to rely more on judgment and creativity, what does the first day on the job look like? How do we train for that? How do we select the right people for those right occupations? I think those are really challenging questions. And I think that we will, it will be misguided for us to just assume that we're going to continue and train uh, or, you know, for some specific skills and that will resolve these issues. And I think that's why we really need a broad coalition of constituents, including labor, creatives, policymakers, and academics to really think about these issues care carefully. This is greater than just the tech sector alone. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really it's a, it's a it's it's an interesting time in this, not just because it's an interesting time in AI, but trying to see everyone figure out what their positions are because there are so many angles and so many things to figure out. People don't know yeah. exactly what they think, including me. Um, so, and me. yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we should probably we should probably wrap up. Um, but guy, thank you so much for for joining us. This was a really interesting conversation, um, and we appreciate your being here. And we hope that we will talk to you again soon. No, Scott, Sarah, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thanks, guy. Thanks.